Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Step 10, which starts on page 84, suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. It says we vigorously commence this way of living as we clean up the past. And I had already learned that, you know, from the bridge between step three and step four, you know, once I'd done step three, immediately I was meant to start step four. You know, and the program does really accelerate if you're following this book. And the people that were sponsoring me, really, I have one sponsor, but... There was a group of people on this book who kept pushing me to go forward. And I was given a very helpful piece of paper once I had done a few amends. So quite soon after I had done my step five, you know, within a couple of weeks. And a piece of paper is an A4 document, which is based on the nightly review, which is on page 86, which looks like it's in step 11. In our group, we tend to take step 10 and 11 together as continuing to live this program, you know, more action. And for me, this is part of continuing to grow along spiritual lines. Because I have to start a new way of living. It's this new way of living, which is trust God, clean house, keep my side of the street clean. I never had known what that meant keeping my side of the street clean and trying to help others. It says in step 10, our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. That really hit me because I'm still in a fog. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. You know, and by then I knew I would be an alcoholic for life, that I would die with this illness, but I didn't want to die of it. You know, continue to walk for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And the nightly worksheet that I was given was so important. Because I had only really opened a crack in the veil that, you know, blocked me from the truth about myself. But doing this every day, I saw how subtle selfishness and self-centeredness could be. You know... Simple matters like leaving my departure time for a train to get to a meeting to the last minute. <laughs> for me, I'd be racing down. So I lived on the fifth floor of an apartment building. No elevator, no lift, elevator, whatever you want to call it. You know, and sometimes my neighbors would be in the stairway, and I hadn't left enough time to say a decent civil hello to them. You know, or there would be a traffic jam in the car park where I parked my bicycle, but I still couldn't get out, you know. And I started to realize every day how selfish and self-centeredness, you know, it was blocking me from other people. It was blocking me from what I need, you know, where I needed to be to do God's will, but it was also blocking me from other people. But this day by day, these little things 
introduced me to the subtleties of the way my mind thinks. And uh, I give that to people fairly early. And I have some friends who do sponsoring in AA, and sometimes they start people off with that daily inventory. Start to look for this, start to look for this. I was starting after I knew what to look for, but. And the step 10 promises, promises we need in meetings, I, I don't know uh, how aware anyone of, is of this, just dipping back into step 9. You know, in a lot of AA meetings in niche, it used to read the promises. In fact, when I was trying to stop drinking, my husband had picked up a book at the airport. Gifts of sobriety, and there were little essays on all the promises in step nine. I didn't know that at the time. Gifts of sobriety, well, he didn't know that I didn't really want to stop drinking yet. But uh, still, and I hear this, you know, and it's unfortunate, but a lot of people, and I guess I thought the same thing was that those promises that we read in the meetings would come by just not drinking. Well, that didn't happen for me. I mean, just not drinking. We talked about it in our group about the unmanageability. My unmanageability starts when I stop drinking. My internal, I had learned that my unmanageability is more internal than it, or it starts with the internal. Restless, irritable, discontent. I don't know how to treat other people. But these taste step promises work better than anything. I could have imagined, uh, could have imagined. By the tenth step, I'm doing the tenth step for By this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. I've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For years, I was convinced that the soft drinking would be a, a lifelong fight against the bottle. You know, until, of course, I admitted my carelessness. I can't fight alcohol. I can't fight alcohol. But what I did for step 10, too, was to um, get a little, a, a tiny little spiral-bound notebook, and if things came up through the day, I'd just make a tiny little note to myself that I could put down on the evening inventory. I mean, I was desperate. I didn't want to relapse. You know, I had had enough of drinking. And what gave me the power to do that, I don't know. But I also had a mushy brain, so I needed to do that. Like, the time I got to the evening, sorry, I might have forgotten what happened in the morning. And, and it's not only about what happened, it's mostly about what's going on in my head. You know, I certainly would have forgotten the way I was thinking in the morning or at some point during the day. But this is where I start to live the program, which is like from step three or even step one all the way to step nine. And it says, yeah, step four, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, I ask God at once to remove them, step seven. I discuss them with someone immediately. Step five. Make amends quickly if I have harmed anyone. Step nine, 
Then, because that's all about me, 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 to get out of self, I resolutely turn my thoughts to someone I can help. And that doesn't mean I drop everything I'm doing, like if I'm driving down the highway or at a job where I'm meant to be a productive part of a team or on my own. It's, I turn my thoughts, what can I do for somebody today, you know, just to get my mind off of me, get my mind on what God's will is for me. And there's a promise, yeah, the first promise is love and tolerance of others in their code. And then followed by a whole pro- paragraph of promises. Yeah. And on 85 it says, We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. <laughs> Oh, at one point in time, I could have bravely misinterpreted that sentence. I mean, I didn't have to do anything except to come to meetings and sit in a chair, right? No, that's not what it means. It means that I have not been working on my attitude towards liquor or my feelings about liquor. What happened was, by the grace of something bigger than me and lots of AA, is that my interest in alcohol got replaced by a real desire for recovery. So I was working on recovery rather than working on changing my attitude toward living, or even changing my attitude toward other people. That just came. You know, and it says I will be placed in a position of neutrality. Safe and protected. We have not even sworn off well, I swore off alcohol many times, but it never worked. And as I said before, I didn't get myself sober. But there are warnings here in the big book. I think as we've already heard, it tells us, if we do this, we'll stay sober. If we don't do this, we may not. But there's a warning here on page 85. It is easy to let up on a spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. And this is true. We start to feel good, and then we think we don't have to keep working at it. We are headed for trouble if we do. And poor alcoholism is a subtle foe. <laughs> alcohol is not my foe, really. It's my alcoholism, which resides in my mind. And I have to remember, I am not cured of alcoholism. One thing that really helps me with this book is to put it into the first person. Because for years I read it as a story. That's what it says on the title page, right? The story of these other people. Those people who have recovered from alcoholism. I thought it was a story. I read it like a story, but until I was taught that it was a textbook. So I have to heed these warnings. What we really have is a daily period contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. So I start in the morning asking what God's will is for me today and carry God's will into my, all my activities. You know, prayer, quiet time, thinking of how I can carry the message to someone who still suffers. You know. That's in the morning, getting my thought life on a higher plane. 
not worrying about little my own little plans and designs. That's in the morning. Then they meld into step eleven, which follows step ten. I found it I found it really helpful to do these steps in order. Prayer in the beginning was difficult for me, but I started by saying thank you. And now I can relax about it. But that doesn't mean not do it. That means I can get uh, relaxed a power better than myself. Talk, but mainly leave enough room, leave enough space, leave enough time to listen. Just sit, just sit. Not figured, try not to think too much. Try to listen for some answers. I haven't heard it for a while, uh, but they used to say when we were newcomers that we were given uh, two ears and one mouth, and what did that tell us about? What we were supposed to be doing, listening, listening, listening. So I have a little sheet. I didn't bring it with me, but if anyone wants it, I can certainly get it to them, and I think you do when we have it. But this step 11, look at the first paragraph in step 11. Okay, they mentioned that prayer meditation. But the first paragraph on 86 is a bunch of inventory questions. Okay, quite a few of them. And my sheet, it has these questions. I didn't create the sheet. It was given to me. It has these questions plus a few others. And so I'm keeping check on, you know, where I'm going wrong in the day, but also there's a place where, where I'm going right, that is, where I can see the new power flowing in, where I can see new, new things happening in my life, where I can get into gratitude, and where I can, you know, it urges me to think of others. It's very useful. Very useful, but so many people that I've tried to sponsor, try to sponsor, um, try to show them what is in this book. And when we get to this point, and I'm written, to me, I had to write it down. I think what I've seen is people who write it down, just like in the four step. I couldn't have done a four step in my head. Um, and the same with the evening inventory, to write it down. It becomes more concrete, it becomes more real. Um, and the people I see, they say, oh, I do it in my head. I, they're not really doing it because it shows. It's like we were having a discussion between the two sessions. And it, it was actually around amends. But I realized that through amends, I've stopped doing the things I used to do that used to get me in a bad place that would lead to a dream. That would lead to the bedevilments, you know, bad relations with other people. I've stopped doing the things, more or less, <laughs> or to a large extent, that I've made amends for. If I haven't made amends for them, then I haven't understood their direct link to my drinking. And I'm, I'm probably at risk, and I've seen this happen. And it's the same thing, if I'm not taking inventory, then my my behavior is going to change a lot more slowly, if at all. Because the whole, it's a lovely cycle, you know. I start in the morning, I pray. I, let, I try to do inventory sort of on a 
continuously intermittent basis all through the day. And then I pray. After making my review, I ask God, that means I pray, I pray for forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. So the whole cycle for me, I can summarize it, prayer, inventory, prayer, prayer for guidance and direction for the day, inventory to keep an eye on, like, you know, myself, because God's got a lot of other things to look after. And then at the end of the day, again, prayer, prayer, inventory, prayer. So where when I was a newcomer, I thought inventory was about beating myself up. I understand it now as a, as a tool to get me back to my director, <laughs> to that guidance that I need in my life, because I don't need to be learning on self-will. So, uh, inventory prayer. And then they jump back to the morning. So, the morning, I need to... Before I begin my day, I ask God to direct my thinking. In that morning quiet time, I never used to take it. And just off on automatic pilot. And this reminds me in the morning of the set format, sort of for that too, that was given to me. And I've seen not much reason to change it. I get centered as soon as I get up. I remember who I am and where I need to be and who I need to be in contact with. I heard it really well said. I never thought of this, thought of it this way until a visitor, visitor appeared. I think she was from the state. She said, I wake up in the morning with untreated alcoholism. I thought, hey, yeah, some days I do. Some days I do. You know, but I have to, I have to remember, yeah, I, I keep to this routine. Um, because I need this good orderly direction. I need this kind of a routine. And I've been in enough sort of mental facilities to have my alcoholism and my drinking problem treated that I know that's what they, that's what they do in mental hospitals. You follow a routine. And the thing is, I need to, uh, it says, my thought life will be put, placed on a much higher plane. And that doesn't mean, you know, my head is in the clouds. It means I'm thinking about something a little bit bigger than myself, which is specifically in AA. Is can I help another person? Can I help another alcoholic? And if there's no other alcoholics, maybe I can help someone else. You know, it has, I have to get me out of me. But there are a lot of good suggestions all the way through step 11 about what to do throughout the day. Maybe, do you want to talk about that part or? Um, well, you just half, talk about 10, 11 now. I'll do 10, 11 to that. I'll do halfway through. Okay. But this is full of good suggestions. You know, I realized today that I used to, uh, my life used to be run on automatic pilot, and, uh, your hand says, what do I do when I'm agitated and doubtful? I learned in AA that there was a third choice, you know, do nothing. Here it says, we pause and ask for the right thought or action. So I don't need to do something right away. I don't need to get anything. You know, I've asked for the right part of action. 
And I can do that in prayer, and I can do that by talking to another alcoholic or other same person, recovered alcoholic. You know, thy will be done many times each day. And this is, this is, a this is how I can sort of live with my own illness. You know, following these instructions, starting in the morning, checking all through the day, making amends if necessary. I'm in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. You know, I used to be an emotional roller coaster, running on autopilot, making mistakes everywhere, emotional roller coaster, and that doesn't happen to me very often. And this thing about we do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. Uh, well, yeah. When I first got sober, um, I realized how tired I was, and I thought it was all about the drinking. That's why I was so tired, you know, physically a wreck and everything. And after I started using these instructions, I got this, um, you know, when I first got sober, I was full of energy. You know, but I think that was just happiness, joy, whatever. But then again, when I started using these instructions, I got a new burst, and I realized that, yeah, the alcohol had been a physical burden, and I was tired, but... What I had really been doing all my life was trying to run the show myself, and with my alcoholism, that was far more tiring uh, than the drinking. You know, so this is so true for me. So true. I thought I had thought this book was about them, but I found out it was about me. So over to you, Tim. Thank you. My name is Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I don't know about anyone else, but I've had a few problems in my life with relationships. Now, maybe you haven't had problems with relationships, but perhaps sometimes you'll sponsor people who do, so this may come in handy. Um, now, there are surely lots of different types of crazy relationships. Uh, I have two specialities. Speciality number one is relationships with men who are tall and confident and capable and bright and impressive and cold as ice. <laughs> and give nothing back. But they're reliable in all sorts of practical ways. You know, they can change light bulbs. And um, I would give up my life for these people, and I would commit suicide over these people. And I thought there was a problem with men. There was a problem with the men I was choosing. Um, and as a friend of mine describes these people, they're like turnip juice in a beautiful glass, and all you see is the beautiful glass, and you forget that it's like drinking turnip juice. Um, and you walk into a room, and your eyes lock, and you know immediately, here's another one, you just like all the other ones. And the trick, what you try and do, 
is you pick someone who is like the person with whom the relationship failed and you try to get the relationship to rerun but you want to get the ending to change and the purpose of the ending of the relationship is to mend your wounded self-esteem and there's something they do that they make you feel so special for about four minutes a day and you will live for those four minutes and uh, there's that line in the Sondheim song um, from Follies uh all afternoon doing every little chore, the thought of you stays bright. It's the wonderful light in a life of dullness and monotony. Okay, this is type of relationship number one. Type of relationship number two. Again, I have to use the words of a friend of mine because um, they're better than anything I can come up with. The orphan with the big eyes and the broken wing. <laughs> And you spot an opportunity to save, to rescue, to martyr yourself, to mother them, to manage them, to manipulate them. And when they call you eight times a day, you just know how important you are to someone. And you don't have to look at any of your problems, do you? And you have all the power. It's just delicious. Uh, but it's also hellish, and as the same friend describes, it's like Halloween and Christmas and Valentine's Day all rolled into one beautiful relationship. Now, um, I tried many years to, this is the phrase, you, you hear, hear this a lot in recovery world, I'm working on my relationships. Now, Let's call these types of people that I would get attracted to poisonous men. Now, there is nothing poisonous about them. They're just poisonous to me because I'm allergic to these two character types. But we'll call them, we'll call them poisonous men. Let's read the step 10 promises with reference to this. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even poisonous men. For by this time sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in poisonous men. If tempted, we recoil from it from them as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward poisonous men has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. And this has been my experience, both with poisonous uh, men in a romantic sense and the people that I'm liable to try and save. I cannot have a healthy relationship with an unhealthy person. Cannot. It, it, it's, my idea was you get two broken people and you put them together and you end up with one unbroken person. You don't. You just have two even more broken people at the end of it. I can, I'm going to repeat this one, I cannot mend my relationships. Now, I don't have these broken relationships anymore. When I see an opportunity to get into one of these two types of relationship, this promise has come true. I recoil as if from a hot flame. There are people that can help both of those categories of people. I'm not them. There are seven billion people on the planet. There is a reason for this. It means I don't have to be everywhere. Um, so the question is, how do the how do those promises come true if not by working on the relationships? They come true 
by steps 10, 11, and 12. And we're going to talk about step 12 tomorrow, so we're going to talk about steps 10 and 11 now. Um, I'm going to be heretical for a moment. There's a little line that they say in almost every AA group in the world. Uh, they say, you have to get out of the driving seat, with reference to step 3, to get out of the driving seat. I am firmly of the belief the problem is not that we are in the driving seat. We have been in the passenger seat, our ego has been in the driving seat. And we have been the unwitting victim of forces far bigger than us, operating within us, convincing us that we are the ones doing this. Until I recognize my powerlessness over my alcoholism, I can't start to treat my alcoholism. Until I recognize my powerlessness over my own ego, I cannot start to treat my own ego. So, this begs the question, well, what would being in the driving seat look like? It, for me, it means that uh, only I can take the actions that need to be taken in my life. It means that I don't get into your car and drive it for you, or stand in the middle of the road directing traffic. My job is to drive my life, to take the actions of my life. Now, the problem has always been twofold. Source of power and direction. It talks all the way through we agnostics about these are the two things we need. We need power, we need direction. If I'm driving, I need petrol in the engine, and I need a satellite navigation system. If either of those two things are not there, we ain't going anywhere. And power and direction for me come through prayer and meditation and helping others and service and fellowship and all of those things, but chiefly it's this direction business we're interested in, step 11 in the morning. And so the first question, I, the, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is, God, God direct my thinking. Because if God doesn't, something else will. <laughs> and you don't want to see the results when something else does. And sometimes, if all you can do in the morning is say 100 times, God, please direct my thinking, God, please direct my thinking, at least you're not saying what you would otherwise be saying. Uh, I think it's not a bad prayer, God, please divorce my thinking from self-pity, from self-seeking, from dishonest motives. Again, repeat 100 times if necessary. Nothing wrong with repetition. It doesn't mean it's less spiritual. Uh... My job in the morning is to get a list of things to do today as guided by a power greater than myself. And I ask also for a spirit in which to do them. So I go back to this fear. How do you solve fear? You ask God to remove the fear, direct your attention to what he would have you be. Three adjectives for each activity. And this I just find immensely useful whenever my mind goes elsewhere. I can have those three qualities to ask God to infuse my action with. And I'm going to talk a little bit about meditation in a moment, but that's really what the step 11 in the morning is about. It's getting a plan for the day, getting my attitudes, my head on straight, as it were. And then at night, the step 11 review um, is the debrief at the end of the day, what, did, what went well, what went badly. Name one thing, one thing will do that I'm going to do differently tomorrow. And, you know, I'd love to be more spiritual, but sometimes my corrective measures are don't go on Facebook until you've finished work. Don't go on Facebook until you've finished And if I can do that one day out of three, it, it's a sensational success. 
uh, you know, I'm not advanced, but I'm still working on some basic things like working whilst I'm at work. Um, but it's the middle bit that I find so interesting. Um, I get a lot of phone calls which are, or texts or emails which start off with something like this, I'm full of resentment, or I'm full of fear. I'm full, as though you have been filled by something else, as though you are a vessel, and and you've just been a victim, and it's poured into you. And I've been taught not to talk about myself in those terms, but to tell the truth. And the truth, when I am full of resentment, is I have been permitting negative thoughts minute in, minute out, hour in, hour out, the whole day, and then and now I'm complaining that I don't like how I feel when I have been thinking resentful thoughts for 12 hours. And I want you somehow to say something spiritual to make it go away, because I don't want to do the work. I don't want to actually change. And in a prayer, in another book, it says, lead us not into temptation. The temptation is to think a negative thought in, in Al-Anon, in some parts of Al-Anon, some very hard-line, offensive parts of Al-Anon. They'll say the wonderful line, a slip is any negative thought. So step 10 during the day, my job is to make sure that, as I'm driving my little car of sobriety, um, that the steering wheel is straight which means that my mind is supposed to be, when I'm doing the washing up, I'm supposed to be thinking about the washing up. I'm not even supposed to be thinking anything spiritual. I'm supposed to be thinking about, that's the most spiritual thing I can do, is to be thinking about the washing up. When someone is talking to me, to actually be listening to the words they're saying, not working out what I'm going to say next. Or is there someone more interesting over there? Or what's wrong with this person? You know, the other kind of narrative that goes on when you're talking to people. To be present is the only purpose. It says on page 59 about God, may you find him now. And I think it means that. It, it, it mentions it in a different context, but it does work in this context. I will find a power greater than myself right here. Ask yourself right here, right now, is anything bad happening to you? What is your experience of the actual universe around you right now? And it's almost invariably benevolent. There is nothing bad happening. And it's that present that I need to come back into contact with. Whenever my mind goes elsewhere, and the four places it can go cheaply is, is selfishness and dishonesty and resentment and fear, I would add two more, again not in the big book, fantasy, nostalgia. Those are the two other ways I will escape reality. So my job in step 10 is uh, my mind is like an untrained puppy on a leash. I just you just need to keep tucking. Gently, you don't yank. Don't yank a puppy. Just gently and persistently, you're going to carry on. Uh, so I gently and persistently need to bring my mind back. And as it says, we ask God at once to remove them. We don't analyze them first because whilst you're analyzing those thoughts. That's your ego's way of, of tricking you into continuing to think about them. Now it says, lead us not into temptation, because the temptation is, there's something delicious about either thinking resentful thoughts or fearful thoughts or whatever they are. Guilt or shame. 
And there's something equally delicious about thinking about the fact you are thinking about them and trying to work, what am I going to do about thinking these? You need to stop doing it. There's nothing to analyze because you can't see the truth from within the situation. I can't tell you how many times I have been obsessed with this or that or him or her or them trying to work out why I'm so obsessed and why, why does this particularly bother me? I just, oh, I need to work it out. Stop. I wish the phone would stop ringing so I can concentrate more heavily on me. <laughs> Whereas the truth is I need distance from it and then I will glance back at this thing which obsessed me and go, what's that about? That's weird. That's strange. So step 10 is adjusting the steering wheel as I'm going through the day. Now, if I'm particularly distressed, I, I, I do admit I will have to call someone, or I will have to, sometimes I have to make amends. But what I'll do, I'll call a friend of mine who's in the room, and I'll say, my head's all wrong, make it right. <laughs> By which I mean, you tell, I know that my thinking is not straight and I want, I want to be proven wrong. You, you tell me how I'm wrong because I can't see why I'm wrong. If I'm disturbed, I've made the wrong choice. If I'm not at peace, I've made the wrong choice. I've, I've valued something that shouldn't be valued. Show me how I am wrong because I want to be wrong today. If you're unhappy and you want to be right, God help you. So we talk until I say, I can see, ah, oh, that's why I'm wrong. And then I'm alright. So that's how I use other people um, in this. With um, step 11 in the morning, um, I mentioned earlier my utter failure with Eastern forms of meditation for the first 15 years of recovery, which a former sponsor of, of mine referred to as the early years. So if you're in your first 15 years and struggling, don't forget you are in some ways in early recovery. Um, and he meant this not to put me down, but as a comfort, so that I wouldn't say, I wouldn't think there was something wrong with me just because I was still struggling um, with things that I thought I ought to, ought to have gotten over by now. Well, if you ought to have gotten over it, why haven't you? Clearly there's a reason. You know, nothing happens for nothing, so it's fine. Um, and I fully expect things to happen in the future. I don't think I'm, uh, I'm still cookie dough in some ways. I'm not cookies all the way through. Um, so I need a form of meditation which is going to work for someone who, whose mind, uh, was very damaged when I got to AA. Um, I need a form of meditation which is going to meet me where I am as opposed to starting from somewhere which is too far ahead for me to get to. Meditation as, I tried meditation classes in my first 10 years, and it was like going to advanced algebra when you can't do arithmetic. Um, now, fortunately, when the big book was written, meditation had a slightly different sense than it has now. Um, so meditation didn't appear in, didn't have television, didn't appear on films. It, and, you know, the, the, the word was written in the 1930s, and although Bill W. was instrumental in writing it, the concept of it came uh, from middle America. 
And uh, when you look up in a 1930s American dictionary, it talks about things like concentrated thought, directed thought. And uh, Buddhists, God bless them, don't have a monopoly on meditation. And if you can't do Buddhist meditation, it's fine. You can still be a good AA. <laughs> I've been told by people in AA, because I don't do mindfulness, that I'm not meditating properly. Don't let anyone tell you you're not doing stuff that properly because you won't do it that way. Um, what I do is um, informed by what Benedictines apparently do, which is like Lectio Divina. Right, you take text and you read it through very slowly. And the first time you read it through, you just sort of when you get to something which makes sense, you pause and then you think about it. And then you go through it, you go back to the beginning and you go line by line. And you read the first line and perhaps it will do nothing for you. And you, you read the next line, you think about it. You read the third line, ding 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 ding. And it makes you it, it, it puts things in your everyday life into a new light. You suddenly realize what you're doing in, wrong in your relationship with Jennifer. That tomorrow when you see Jennifer, you're going to need to just shut up and let her talk, for instance. And you don't know why that has occurred to you in relation to... Because the text is not about Jennifer. But you read this stuff and it changes your perception. Um, and I have shelves full of books, and I'm, I'm like a magpie with these things. I, I've been taught, go, don't feel, if you've started a particular spiritual reading book to use for your spiritual reading, you don't have to finish it all the way through. You don't have to do all 365 exercises because you said you would start. If it's not working for you, if you're just getting, go and find something which speaks to you, which is at your level where you are today. And sometimes I can read fancy stuff, sometimes I need very simple stuff, sometimes I'll use the big book this way, I'll just go through a page line by line, say, what does this say to me? What does this say about my relationship with other people? What does this say about my relationship with God? How could I apply this to my problems with work? How could I apply this to my problems with my partner? How could I do today better on the basis of what I'm reading here? And um, something that Dr. Bob said was that the most important, the most important hour, time of the day, and actually the most important element of the program, someone said to him, apparently, uh, what do you think of AA meetings? And he said they're wonderful, unnecessary. But they're not vital. What is vital is spending uh, quiet time, as it was originally called, with your higher power every day. And um, there are times I do less, there are times I do more. I'm probably averaging about 45 minutes to an hour a day. And I do a little review. I pray a few little prayers. I might read a little bit of the big book. It's all very relaxed. It's all very unstructured. And I go to the books that help me right now. I go to the books that feed me right now. Sometimes I can't bear written words. And I go and listen to an AA tape or an Al-Anon tape or some other spiritual tape. Because I can't take anything in otherwise. I'm just built like that. And I think the reason why... God seems to have punished the earth with so many modes of communication and spiritual thought is because all of them are necessary. 
and a power greater than myself communicates to me through you, through other people in recovery, through nature, through animals. You sit and watch an animal and you think, could I? You sit and watch puppies of dogs and you think, could I be a bit more like that? Could I be a bit more curious and inquisitive rather than jaded and cynical? I'd rather see, I'd rather see someone I work with go for a walk with their dog for half an hour a day and watch the dog and look at the wonder of trees rather than faking it with some meditation technique that they can't get their head around. So I have this, I'm a stickler for facts and results. I want to do what works. And what I, what I, all the stuff that I have done, and I've done all sorts of different things, and I occasionally do do little bits of mindfulness occasionally now. But it works. And how I know that it works is when I've spent that time, and I look at what is in front of me during the day, I think, I can do that. It's all right. Not frightening anymore. And the reason it's not frightening anymore is because it talks here about a higher plane. And what it reminds me is that there is a greater reality than all of the awful details of my life. I can get stuck in all of the awful details of my life, the, all the work I have to do and deadlines and little disputes with clients. And I can get mired in that and think that that is the real world. I can watch the television and look at the news and think that is the real world. I can get lost. I can forget the greater reality. The city I live in, a lot of people complain that it's, oh, London, it's so aggressive. And I remember thinking about that one day, and I was going on a 10-15 minute walk, and I looked around me, and I thought, let's see if I can see any aggression. For 10-15 minutes, I might have seen three or four hundred people walking, you know, just going about their business, keeping cafes. Everybody, it was a sunny day, albeit, uh, Everyone seemed to be enjoying themselves, getting on well. No one was hurting anyone. No one was harming anyone. People were just quietly, beautifully, peacefully going about their business. That's the reality. And prayer and meditation in the forms that I've used it. And this, how does this link with God? When I've got a problem, I treat God like I would another person say, God, hello. What? He says, no formality. You're allowed to talk to God like you would Um, a little problem here. Uh, what would you, what would you like me to do? And you listen, get a pen, get a piece of paper, write down what comes to you. And then measure it against spiritual principles of selfishness and, uh, selflessness and love and tolerance and patience and kindness. Usefulness. Cheerfulness. Check it out with someone else. Two-way communication. It's not complicated. You're allowed to talk to God. You're allowed to listen and believe that what comes to you when you have addressed God and said, give me something here. You're allowed to believe that might come from God. May or may not, but it might. You don't have to go through special channels. And it's 25 past. We've been asked to ask if you have any questions about steps 10 or 11. Very, thank you very much. Have we got? Um, yeah, we've got five minutes. If anybody's got 
um, one or two questions. Um, the Tradition 7 basket will be going round. For those of you that can and would like to and haven't, um, <laughs> it, contributions will be nice. Um, at, when we finish the session now, I'd ask everybody just to take their chair and move it to the side of the room before you leave, because we will um, be setting up tables for dinner. Um, so when we finish now, we'll have the serenity prayer. Let, let me pass the tradition seven bar. If you have this fine, it's no obligation. It's just passing around. Um, Laura will be sharing her story at quarter past six, and dinner is at seven. So as many of you can, please stay for dinner. And um, the, uh, the draw for the lottery will be at 7.30. So there's still more tickets to sell if you wish. To buy, rather, not to sell, to buy. They want to sell them, you buy them. Um, but just the last few minutes, anybody got a couple of questions? And can you shut up because we can't get the mic to you, I don't think. Given for Yes. Um, just for the tape as well, the question is, um, uh, one of the ladies uses the forgiveness prayer uh, in one of the stories in the book where you pray for someone else's well-being for two weeks. Oh, um, but the difficulty that one can't necessarily forget, even though one can forget. Well, what happened, Laura, I'm an alcoholic, and uh, what happened to me was that, um, you know, starting with step four, it talks about me looking for my own mistakes. This is kind of one of the step ten promises. And anyway, starting in step four, I look for my own mistakes. I forget about the other person's mistakes. Same in step nine, I don't criticize the person that may have done me more harm than good. I think it's just an experience that happened to me. I didn't necessarily do anything, but when I realized, when I, real, when I understood the harms I had done to other people, um, sometimes there's failed in comparison. Once in a while, I suppose, I must admit, I mean, I'm not a saint. I don't claim to be. Once in a while, something that hurt me in the past comes back to me, especially when I'm working with a newcomer that can't get over these things because they haven't gone through the sets. But uh, it will come back to me, but I don't, I don't labor on it and I ask God to, you know, remove that thought because it's, very often, uh, I don't really know what you mean by forget. Um, I know my thinking about those hearts has changed. So, yeah, I'm not really sure what you mean by forget. But these things don't often um, come back to haunt me. But what I find is, and it says in one of the nine step promises, is that we shall not close, we shall not wish to close the door on it, or we shall not regret the past, or wish to shut the door on it. So, to me, and uh, I find that when God reminds me of these things, it's for a reason. 
When life reminds me of these things, it's for a reason. Maybe I really haven't cleared the resentment, but I thought I had. Or maybe it needs to be fresh in my mind so I can help another person with what they're do- doing, trying to get past in their life. So maybe Tim has a different take. Um, well, everything that's ever happened to me, I still retain in my memory because sometimes the information is useful and there may be places you don't want to go back to and people you swerve. So that's just self-preservation. Um, but when I find myself dwelling on someone else's wrong, even if I think I've forgiven them, oh, I'm not sure I have. So you can feel like you've forgiven while well, you're dwelling on it then. And um, the first reason why I will dwell is because I actually owe them an amend, and I feel guilty. The way the ego gets rid of guilt is it turns it into blame. Because that justifies the thing that you did to them. Fascinating. I love the way the ego works. Almost as fascinating as God. Um, the second thing is this um, dwelling when you know you think you've forgiven. The trouble is with prayer. This is one of the difficulties of praying for someone that you resent. Is you're still thinking about them, but you've just cast it in a new light. And so one of the things that I have to do. Is, this is Dr. Paul O's story. He would say um, he'd phone up his sponsor and say, oh, my wife. And he said all the terrible things that his wife was doing. And his sponsor said, why not try not thinking about it for a couple of days? And he said, not think about it, then I'll forget all about it. (laughs) And there's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, And just one last thing on forgiveness. There are two types of forgiveness. There's forgiveness where you retain the perception that the other person is just an awful human being, but you're going to be so spiritually elevated, you're going to overlook it in a benign fashion. Now, this passes for forgiveness in some circles and is surely better than pushing them downstairs. However, um, I think real forgiveness is when you remove the perception that you have been harmed and replace it with the perception that this is someone who may be operating out of fear. And you happen to have been in the way. There's a line from Friends where Jennifer Aniston is teaching Matt LeBlanc how to sail, and he can't sail, and she's an expert, and, and she's getting, she's furious, and he's getting everything wrong. And he says, don't be angry with me. Don't yell at me. She says, I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling near you. And all of the harm that's ever been done is harm that's been done in my presence. It's not been done to me. The thing that hurt was my egoic interpretation of it. And if I can get to that, there is nothing to forgive. I just happen to have witnessed something. But that's taken a lot of work. And the footnotes, if anyone's interested in further investigation along those lines, Anthony DeMello really helps. A Course in Miracles really helps. This Buddhist writer, I think it's amazing, called Yoko Beck, J-O-K-O Beck, B-E-C-K, um, and Emmett Fox. Those, those are the ones who have um, saved my bacon.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.